Hey everyone, we are lucky enough to have as a sponsor Squarespace, the all-in-one platform that makes it fast and easy to create your own professional website or online portfolio. Just use it, just go get it for a free trial and 20% off. Uh, that's, you know, the trial's free. 20% off is off of when you finally sign up, which you will. Go to squarespace.com and use the offer code WRITERS9, the, letter, the number 9. It's not a letter. It's a number. Um, someday I'll learn this stuff. To be a writer, you don't need to know the difference between letters and numbers. Anyway, Squarespace starts at just $8 a month and includes a free domain name if you sign up for a year. Once again, it's squarespace.com and use the offer code WRITERS9. Squarespace has over 20 highly customizable templates for you to choose from, um, and they're super great. They're really easy. I use mine on the website. Every design automatically includes a unique mobile experience that matches the overall style of your website, so your content will look great on every device, every time, because who uses computers anymore? Um, this is actually a kind of a key thing, and it's what Squarespace is pretty great for, that you can, that it looks as good on your phone and iPad as it does on the computer, and this is something that restaurants could learn a lot about. You ever go to a restaurant uh, website on your iPad? Yeah, it's not that great. Uh, they should use Squarespace. It's incredibly easy to use. Uh, but if you want help, Squarespace has an amazing support team that works 24 hours a day, seven days a week. Start with a trial with no credit card required and start building your website. Squarespace is everything you need to create an exceptional web website. Uh, once again, for the free trial and 20% off, go to squarespace.com. Use the offer code WRITERS9. And we thank Squarespace for their support. Hi, everyone. Ben Blacker here, the creator and usually moderator of the Nerdist Writers panel. Thanks for downloading this. Follow me on Twitter, at Ben Blacker. Shameless. Um, today's panel is a really cool one from this year's ATX Television Festival. That's the Austin TV Festival. Uh, it was all about mythology and world building um, in kind of unexpected ways with some really unexpected people. Unfortunately, they are not introduced. Um, the first voice you'll hear is the moderator, the AV Club's Todd Vanderwerf. Uh, he does a great job moderating this panel. Um, the second voice you'll hear is our old pal Jane Espenson, and I'm sure you'll recognize her voice. The third voice you'll hear is uh, our old pal Richard Haddam um, from Grimm and the Gates, and he's currently on the Once Upon a Time spinoff Wonderland. Um, the other panelists on this uh, episode are Winnie Holzman, the creator of My So-Called Life, and you will recognize her voice because she sounds like Angela Chase from My So-Called Life. Um, and then the other two fellows are Dimitri Lipkin, who's the creator of The Riches and Hung, um, and Remy Obishan, who's the creator of Caprica uh, and has worked on everything. Uh, and these guys are asked direct questions, so you'll, you'll pretty much be able to figure out who's who once it gets rolling. But this was a really interesting conversation, uh, and I think you're going to enjoy it. I know I did. If you haven't gotten your badges for next year's ATX Television Festival, go do that. Uh, go to atxfestival.com, get your badges. Uh, I will definitely be there. They could not keep me away. Um, I'll also be at the end of October at the Austin Film Festival uh, for the first time, and I hear great things about it. I was excited to be invited this year, and I'll be moderating a bunch of things including a live Nerdist Writers panel. And as soon as uh, the panelists are set for that, and as soon as I know what else I'll be doing there, uh, I will let you guys know 
via Twitter, which is why I mentioned follow me on Twitter, at Ben Blacker. Um, as ever, if you enjoy this podcast, please leave a review on iTunes. It is very helpful to us. Um, you know, every live panel benefits 826LA, the national nonprofit tutoring program. And the better we do, the easier it is to get guests. And uh, also, the more, the better uh, we get advertisers. And uh, that is helpful as well. So please leave a, a review on iTunes. Follow me on Twitter at Ben Blacker. Go like the podcast on Facebook, uh, facebook.com slash panel. That's the best place to tell me who you want to see on these panels. And don't forget, every Saturday, we put out the Nerdist Writers Panel Comics Edition, which is interviews and conversations uh, about the business and process of writing and producing comics. That is all. Uh, here is the mythology panel from ATX. Enjoy. Now entering Nerdist.com. It's the Nerdist Writers Panel on the Nerdist Podcast Channel. Ben Blacker talking writing with writers. Writers talking writing can get pretty exciting. The talk can be lightning. It's very, very frightening. Ben Blacker talking writing with writers. Yeah. All right, uh, we will open up for audience questions toward the end, so be thinking of good ones, because mine are terrible. Um, all right, so I wanted to just start um, and just ask, you know, we have this, this uh, the panels about mythology, but uh, is there a good definition for that, you know? Um, this, we, we sort of associate it with sci-fi and fantasy shows, but I, I don't necessarily know that it belongs only in that category. No, I don't think it does. We, we were chatting out in the hall before this, and we were sort of saying that we think of it as world building. Like, that's a phrase we would use. And I think if you think of it that way, every show exists in a world, a fictional world, that is its bubble. And that every, every show has to have, it, that world has to have its own rules. How do you define those rules, then? Oh, go ahead, Richard. Sorry? No, I was more comfortable with the last question. <laughs> <laughs> Answer the last question. Can we just, we'll edit out that one. <laughs> Mythology, uh, well, here, here's the funny thing. The shows that we grew up on didn't have mythology in the way that we understand it. Kojak had no mythology. Even the, I mean, I guess the Incredible Hulk did, but the Night Stalker didn't. I mean, the Night Stalker was a complete reset every week. He had no backstory. There was nothing going on. His boss completely forgot what had gone on the previous week. You know, Kolshak, you're talking about a vampire? It's like, yeah, and last week it was a werewolf. There's something happening in Chicago. Uh, but, it, but then things changed. Now, every show. I mean, you know, you know what had mythology back in the old days were things like Dallas and Falcon Crest. But my so-called life is all mythology, because it's just all ongoing stories that span the entire series. Okay, that's interesting, because you were clearly defining mythology a little differently than I was, but in a way that, now that you're saying it, makes... Yeah, maybe that's what we should have been talking about. Dear God. Um, but yeah, you're talking no, no, about the, the accumulated about. past of the show that creates the things that the characters all have in their shared memories as their shared mythology. Oh, yeah, that's good. But what you said about rules is really important. I'm not sure I can explain why, but... It's, I know that's really important. Yeah. Well, one, one uh, 
aspect of that that always, I've watched a number of shows, and one of them that comes to mind, a show that I like, thought I was going to really love, and then as you realize that the rules were flexible, uh, space above and beyond, was a show that actually started out with this amazing future, I don't know if you remember it, it wasn't on that long, but it had this amazing futuristic view of the military and, and what mission was, and it actually was kind of, as all good science fiction is, I think it was sort of a reflection about what was going on with the military at the time and, and place. But as they pushed forward, the rules got very mushy and suddenly what people could do and couldn't do and what the technology was changed. And I think once that happens, you lose the audience. And I think that you could, I think Dallas is a great example of that. If all of a sudden uh, J.R. Ewing becomes a good guy or suddenly grows a heart, that's going to change the show. It's just going to change the show. And so I'm, what I'm doing, because, you know, that's my, that was my job in my family, is I'm trying to amalgamate the two of your opinions uh, together so, to find the coherence. Would you please tell Jane <laughs> that I do not agree? I do think that there is, there's also the, the pattern of breaking the rules, like in the, the Game of Thrones, for example, like there's a constant tearing down of our allegiances and our, you know, that, right. that, there's a, but there's a pattern to that as well. That is the mythology of the show that we're not gonna, we're not going to uh, be a you know, aligned with a certain character. So we've, we've talked about, oh, go ahead, Winnie. Oh, I was just gonna clarify one, one thing. To me, um, the, the rules idea is, is different from who, you, who one might align with as an audience to a character. To me, the rules have to do with you know, if you set up that uh, certain substance, you know, harms harms people, and then suddenly people can be around that substance and it's cool, that is a big problem for the audience, clearly. But if somebody not switches, you know, into a good guy, but if you have a moment where you see into that person's motivation and your alliance starts to question, I think audience likes that. You know, you know what I mean? Like they, they so I think those are two separate things about rules and characters, in my in my in my mind. No, I think that's right. I'm also a middle child, so. <laughs> well, what makes me more messed up is I was the older child. So, but I've, but I've always believed. I don't think this panel is about that, but but. Um, it is now. I always believe that my father was actually the first sibling in our family, so it's like that's where I, you know. So, anyways. Okay. I just I gotta call my therapist. <laughs> so um, we're, we were just talking about the history of TV, how there wasn't a lot of mythology, you know, back in the day. What would you say are kind of what can you remember? Like the first show that you watched that you were really into, where you thought this is a backstory that I'm I'm invested in. This has characters that have histories that I'm interested in. Well, I have to say, Star Trek for me was yeah. the major revelation of that. Um, it created a world that was complete and and I think that I, I don't know that's I mean where I also realized that part of what we're also talking about is, is structural stuff too which is which which has a lot to do with uh, for instance my fascination with with uh, the Twilight Zone which was an anthological show 
But what was fascinating about it is, is that you knew structurally how the show was going to happen. And as an audience member, you were waiting for that twist or turn at the end, and that's what kept catching you in. And, uh, and that, to me, is, you know, is probably different than mythology, but certainly... These are all interesting related concepts that all make a big Venn diagram of, that someone out there can make. Um, I was thinking also when you asked the shows of mythology is that Winnie and I recently attended that TV Guide 101 thing where they were talking a lot about Hill Street Blues. And, like, and I had sort of forgotten how, what a st- sudden discontinuous event that was in the history of television where suddenly we had arcs. And that, sort of, that changed a lot for me as a viewer. Like, oh my God, everything from last week didn't go away. Right. Well, and that really was a huge thing. Uh, there was, you know, I mean, Bochco was a huge writer-producer, late 80s and, you know, up until now. But there was a guy, uh, <laughs> and if you know me, I talk about him all the time, Stephen Cannell, um, who did the A-Team and the Rockford Files and all of my favorite shows when I was in high school. But for years, he was trying to sell Wise Guy, which was a show that eventually came around. But no one would touch it because he was saying, look... It's a guy, he goes undercover, and every episode is a chapter in this story, and it concludes at the end of the season. And in the early 80s, they were like, no way. That's just not going to happen at all. And now every show is like that. And one of the things that informs kind of my definition of mythology is what you're talking to studio and network executives about when you're pitching a show. Because they're like, okay, well, what's the episodic and what's the mythology? What's the episodic means, how do we know an episode has been achieved? What has to happen in 42 minutes that we know, okay, this has now been an episode of this show. Is If it's a cop show, then there's a crime and it gets solved. If it's a law show, there's a trial. What is that thing? And then what's the mythology meaning, but then what's the thing that doesn't get resolved? and that we come back for week after week or even season after season. And I'm not even sure the word mythology got used before the X-Files. I think that was the one where everyone's like, okay, they have a case of the week, but then they also have this giant ongoing Mulder's sister thing. And then how it touches on government conspiracy and all that. I'm interested that tech made was a big part of this change that of how people view that in the back in the day when people went to one would pitch an arc-driven show, you could just admit the, the reasoning was solid. Like, so if somebody misses an episode, they're out of the story. Like, you can't count on everyone always being free Tuesdays at eight to sit down and watch this show. And now that that concern has gone away, or people have to watch all the previous seasons. Imagine a show that's got arcs that span seasons, like Battlestar. Well, how are people ever going to catch up on the previous seasons? Like, now that that's not only possible but assumed, this all gets so much, so much more accessible. Um, Dimitri, you mentioned Game of Thrones just very briefly. Um, I've noticed, you know, even a show like Breaking Bad, which has a very serialized story, of course, you know, Walter White always has a goal every episode that he sort of completes by the end. But in Game of Thrones, um, Boardwalk Empire, some of these other HBO shows, you know, it's all one big story over seasons or even a series. Um, have, have you noticed that shift uh, in, in sort of the television writing world? Yeah. Any of you, I just... What's, uh, what, what, what challenges are there with that sort of form of writing? Well, I think that if you, if you have a situation like Game of Thrones, you kind of have a great big safety net, big glorious safety net. You know the books work, and you know where they're going. 
Um, you don't have that thing we normally have in TV, which we're standing on a bridge that we're building. Uh, they know the bridge goes to the other side of the gulch, so you get to relax. But if you were building like a story that epic and you didn't have it all worked out, nothing could be more terrifying. And a lot of TV is turning into that right now because we are building these big archy things, but you can't, you don't know how many seasons you're gonna go and you don't know what you're laying in now that's gonna pay off later. You don't even know if the actors that you're saying now are gonna be important three years from now are gonna be available three years from now. It's, it's, it's tricky. Yeah, it just it has to be really good. I mean, it's, it's kind of the bottom line, but you know, because you are you're inviting the audience to you know, you, you, it has to grow. They have, they have to come back, and, and it, it does sort of. You do, I think these shows, you know, there's a reason why they're on HBO or Showtime or premium cable networks. That that's that that is you know a point in television. Yeah. Um, Jane, you, you were just briefly talking about this, but. Um, how much of this do you want to have predetermined, like when you're writing a pilot or when you're working on the first season of a show? Because sometimes that could really bury a show. I think of um, Flash Forward, which is a show where they had everything figured out for seven years, and it just was very dull. Right. <laughs> well, I think it's admirable to have a whole bunch of stuff. I wish we could all be in the Game of Thrones situation, um, but we aren't. And, <laughs> and if you figure, if you feel figure out too much stuff in advance, and then the network says, oh, that's, that's not what we want, or an actor turns out not to be good, or drops out, or something, you're really stuck if you've built a whole bunch of stuff on that. So you have to stay flexible. And so you want to find that balance between this story has a number of interesting routes that it can take, versus the, well, it could do any, you don't want the, it could go anywhere. Because then you're just, then it, well, it will feel surprising, but not inevitable. You want stuff to feel set up. Well, yeah, and I get the feeling that you guys hate hearing that in a way. Um, because a question always comes up about, you know, well, you know, did this particular creator know from day one what season five was going to be? Because then it does, because then you sort of, it's like, well, that makes the story more legitimate, and it was inevitable, and that's the way it was meant to be. And that's like, you know... Did Charles Dickens know the end of Nicholas Nickleby when he started writing the first little section? And I, I think you want to feel like, yes, they knew. And that was the point, and it was supposed to end that way, and it had nothing to do with just the mundane, everyday concerns about making television. But the answer is no one knows. <laughs> Not a single person. No one, no one who Maybe creates a show. Knows. Well, Game of Thrones, yeah, because there's a book. And by the way, why was everyone so upset about that episode the other week? I'm, just, I'm like, wait a second, but it was all written like years ago. It was written. This is going to, there it's all been there. Um, uh, so the, uh, is there ever a question where you have too much backstory? you have just too much mythology so it bogs down the, the present episodic storytelling. Well, I think there was a reason that Star Trek was always a place that was open to outside pitches. Like, I got my start pitching at Star Trek because at that point, it was like year three of Star Trek The Next Generation and they were already feeling hamstrung by the history that they had at that point. And they didn't know they were going to go like another 12 years or whatever they went. Um, so yeah, I think there can be a point where you sort of go, we've, we've told all the stories, uh, all our... All our characters have such fraught backstories with each other that, oh, I heard this great story once about a soap opera, which has got to be the end game of getting 
getting tied up by your own backstory. Where um, <laughs> young writing staff on a soap opera uh, was come, trying to come up with stuff for the aging matriarch of the show. Uh, and they went to the actress and they said, we've come up with this great art for you this year. It's gonna be a lot of tears. You're gonna, we're gonna give you a mastectomy this year. It's gonna be very emotional, the cancer and everything. And she said, that sounds great. You do understand this will be my third. <laughs> <laughs> Too much backstory. <laughs> I think I think that there's nothing wrong with. Um, it, I mean, every writer has a different process. I personally like doing research. I like knowing kind of what I'm doing before I start. But I always want to provide for the happy accident. I always want to make sure that I'm never so tied in to something as we're prepping. A season, I usually for a, a season I try to figure out what the arc is for the season, but I never want to be so tied down to it that suddenly, I mean, I've, I've said this a number of times in, in these kinds of things, but, but the one thing that I love about television, perhaps more than any other medium, is that there's, a, there's jazz that gets played with the actors and the writers. And you, if you are careful and, and diligent about watching what they're doing with your stuff, um, then they can feed that back to you and you can feed that back to them. And suddenly, as almost a partnership, you're growing characters and situations. And out of that comes story, which I think is fascinating about that. But I always like to at least know that I've got my pack ready for the journey. Right, sometimes people want to shoot yourself because it's too scary. Right. It's too, it's too much pressure. At least for me. I mean, that's, you know. What you just said to me is my, how I fell in love with TV. What, what made me fall in love with TV? Mm -hmm. Yeah. No, I, I really agree with that because I, I really deeply believe that at the end of the day, story is really just a way for characters to evolve. Right. That even though we think we like story, but it's really just a great context for us to watch the arts and the sort of exploration of these characters, and that's what we really care about. So at the end of the day, story, you know, us planning out the story can only go that, that far, and it has to be from like the inside out. Uh, Dimitri, you, you worked on a show called The Riches, which is, uh, created a show called The Riches, which is a, a really great show. Um, and one of the things I like about that show, and, and there's a lot of shows like this, they explore a real-life subculture that exists in the world, um, and you drew a lot of your backstory and, and things like that from that world. How much, um, how much were you hamstrung by what, what like the Irish traveler culture actually is? Well, right, there's, there's some stuff about the Irish sort of tingers. There's, there are books written about them, there are movies made about, about the American version of that, the, the travelers. There's like hardly anything. There's like one out of print self-published book. <laughs> like a, this cop who's not even a, you know, the cop who knows the travelers. And there's like one half abandoned website by this guy who used to be a traveler. And now he's, so they're all talking about, they're all making these assumptions about like, well, travelers are not like this. And, and while doing the research, well, what, what are the travels like? There doesn't seem to be anything there about it. So I think at, at some point, because I, 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 I wanted to get it right, 
Um, we found a traveler who would talk to us, this woman named Mary. Um, and she called us, because I guess she knew this cop who wrote the, the self-published book. Uh, and uh, and she, she told us, like, what, what I'm going to tell you is going to blow your mind. <laughs> uh, so we're very excited. We really wanted to get this right. We, get it, we all gather around in this, in this you know, little conference room. And like Mary's cousin gets on the phone. Uh, and she's like, uh, well, well, Mary just wants to know a little bit more about the project before she commits. And well, we told her about this. Um, and there's a big pause, and then Mary, and then this woman is like, "Well, what does Mary get out of it?" <laughs> and well, well, we developed the opportunity to get this to to have verisimilitude, and just to have this, you know, to really get this world right. And there's like a long pause, and and she hangs up. <laughs> so, so at that point, we're like, you know what? We're gonna do whatever we want. <laughs> Uh, Winnie, you worked on the shows uh, 30 Something and My So Called Life, which had very, <laughs> had very, very uh, richly developed backstories for, for the characters on those shows um, and their old relationships pre existing before the show, their family relationships, things like that. How much of that um, was known when you went into those shows and how much was sort of made up on the fly? Well, that's. made up while we, while we were doing the show. Um, and it was what you said. It was like stuff was just coming at me. I was just falling in love with those actors, especially Claire, but all of them, all of them, and I was just kind of vibing, to use the technical jargon. <laughs> and, um, you know, of course I'd had some thoughts, and we'd all, we'd, we'd all had some thoughts, all meaning me and Marshall and Ed, Marshall Herskowitz and Ed Zwick. But we'd have, we'd have thoughts, but those thoughts would go awry, for, for sure. Um, with 30-something, with you know, I think it was more like the, those guys created 30-something. And they, yeah, they, you know, we didn't have things like a Bible. There was not, like when I came on to 30-something, which was in the middle, right in the middle, um, there was nothing, there was no anything people would give me. There was nothing to do except, except know the show. And there was, and there was, there's a lot of openness. It was interesting, but it was more like that kind of thing. It was like if I hear it, I'm gonna go, no, that's not, that's just not our world. Like the way even they did their cancer story um, was kind of emblematic. I think I've never used that word out loud. I don't think, but um, <laughs> it was kind of emblematic of how they did the whole show, which is like, yes, somebody's gonna get cancer, but it's going to be. It's going to take a long time for, to, to unfold that cancer story, and it's going to take her marriage in directions and her life in directions that she that we we're not clear on right now. Um, it, it you know the, the the thing that they wouldn't do was like here's our cancer episode. You know that would that would be the rule. I mean that's not completely what we, the kind of rule we were talking about before, but we have some rules. But that would be one of the rules, that we didn't have like a very special episode about cancer. Um, I don't know if that makes sense, but I guess from the laughs. Um, and that was kind of my rule also with, with my so-called life, that if we were gonna do um, a subject, we didn't really think of things like a subject. It was much more what you were just describing as like a 
characters were going to evolve, and it wasn't about a, it wasn't about one crisis or an issue. Um, so. Now, um, as writers, you all try to be conscientious of, of your show and the, the world, but you know these shows can run five, six, seven years, um, and the internet is unforgiving. <laughs> my apologies. My apologies. Has there been a point, you know, when you just, just tell me a story at a time you got something wrong that had been established and then you, you contradicted it, you know, later on and the internet went nuts. <laughs> As it does. I have a pre-internet story where uh, when I was on Chicago Hope, we decided <clears throat> that uh, Christine Lottie's character was going to become an astronaut. And uh, I don't know what the, even the thinking of that was, but... <laughs> But, but we were getting towards the fifth season, and much like Jane said, we were sort of running out of ideas, and that came up. And, uh, and about halfway into it, we realized that in the second season, she was diagnosed with having um, uh, type 2 diabetes, which would prevent her from uh, becoming an astronaut. <clears throat> and we just ignored it. And we might have gotten a letter or two, but thank God we didn't have the internet up and running at that time. Anyone else? Yeah, there, there have been things, I've, I'm going to be vague about them, <laughs> but stuff in the Buffy comics where we realized, like, oh, crap, we broke a rule in the comic book that we'd set up in the show. But what's really cool is when you try to retcon it, you go, okay, well, we can't, we can, we can pretend we didn't do it. Uh, or we can mea culpa it, or the third, more interesting choice is find some really clever retcon that'll make both things be possible. And in doing that, you often find gold. You often find, like, oh my god, we, we couldn't have planned it better. That, that the fact that that rule got broken is now like an Easter egg mystery. Like, are you smart enough to find where we broke the rule? Well, we didn't really break the rule because we were Conversation between uh, Claire's parents, Angela's parents, where they were just they were worried about something, and they said, "But we don't have a basement." And then a few episodes later, we had seen it. <laughs> it just made people love us more. <laughs> One of the clips that they showed at that TV Guide thing was a clip from the Cosby Show, where she's where he says, "Why do we have four children?" And she says, "Because we didn't want five. But then the rest of the season, they had five. <laughs> yeah, and yeah, they, yeah, the pilot they established really clearly that they have four children, and then in episode one on one, they have five. <laughs> like they added a really old one. Richard and Jane, you both have worked on shows, I'm thinking of Miracles and Once Upon a Time, where you're drawing from, you know, stuff that people know really well. Um, how much can you, uh, even though it's in the public domain, how much can you play around with sort of changing that material? Well, not only are we on those shows, but we're on a show together right now. Oh, yes. hi. Ah! <laughs> we are 
both on the staff of Once Upon a Time Wonderland. Um, we, had, we had our first staff get together two days ago, so Once Wonderland is starting to meet and work hard. That means we had margaritas. We had margaritas. <laughs> but as a staff. <laughs> and we acted like it was a one-time thing. But yeah, we think about that stuff all the time, about like, what can we say um, um, about Snow White? Like, can Snow White be abandoned, as we showed her? And uh, it's really our bosses that have to meet with the um, brand management people at, at Disney and determine it, but they've actually, there's been very little pushback. Like, we've, we've It's because no Disney it. owns everything. <laughs> They own Star Wars. I mean, there's just, I mean, they own so much, and that's why this show is so great for them, because they're like, well, great. This is a way for us to continue telling these stories in new and different ways, and at the same time, resell everything we've ever done over and over again. But we should, like, Cinderella as an unwed mother, like, I wouldn't have thought they'd go for that. If we had Cinderella as a drug addict, I don't think they would have. Like, you gotta, you gotta find that line and be reasonable. <laughs> Uh, maybe uh, you uh, you've worked on uh, shows like like Twenty Four, uh, Stargate Universe, uh, Persons Unknown. I have here. Uh, these are shows that kind of have had you know like seasonal, just telling a story over a season. Um, how do you build uh, sort of that backstory over a season as opposed to building something for a whole series? Well, all three of those shows are different. Have different have different issues and problems. Okay. I, I'll tell you that the. I was on the second season of 24, so it, it, it was new and fresh, and nobody knew what they were doing. But, the, I mean, nobody, nobody thought it would work, and then all of a sudden it really worked big, and, and, and Joel and Bob sort of were going, oh, my God, we have, we have to do another season now. Um, but what was, what was interesting about working on that show as opposed to the other two that you mentioned is that, and I put Caprica in that category as well for a different reason, um, is that at one point we were working on breaking episode four and I innocently said to Joel Cernow, but what are you thinking of uh, for 13? You know, and how is that going to affect what's going on? And he looks at me and goes, we're working on episode four now, buddy. You know, uh, we're, let's worry about 13 when we're just about done with 12. But right now we're working on... And you know what? I, I didn't get it at the time. I was like, okay, but I thought you were supposed to, like, you know, figure out what you're doing. But, um, but I think what, what, what makes that, because honestly, and I, I have this from literally the horse's mouth, is that... Uh, there's an actual horse. There's an actual horse that actually writes 24. And it shows in the last seasons. No, that's not true, because... It's not true. Howard Gordon, good friend, and did a great job. Howard, I swear, I loved everything you've done. Um, but they really did not know. They kept it fresh. They kept saying this is an hour-by-hour hour thing, and we need to keep it fresh. And, and I learned a lot by that, because while I can't quite go with a pen light on figuring out what the episode is, I try now to do at least a deer light, you know, where, where I kind of like rather than worry about how this is going to affect episode 10 while I'm working on four, I'm sort of more worried about five and six and, and figuring out how that's going to be coherent. 
Caprica was an interesting thing where, where I was literally refitting a mythology into an already existing mythology. And while I had come to Ron and David with, with an idea that was completely separate from Battlestar, and I tried to re and I retrofitted that for Battlestar, um, I tried to figure out 50 years before what would be the implication that would lead up to the Cylon. War and then and then Jane grabbed that football and and ran with it and I ran with it right off a cliff. No, not at all. <laughs> I thought you did a wonderful job. And then the only thing I'll just say about persons unknown is that which, you know, probably a half a person in this room saw. But but what was interesting about it was that it was a this huge paranoia. Uh, conspiracy thing and you started out the first episode not knowing what was going on and when Chris McCory who wrote the the pilot when I asked him he goes I have no idea what's going on um, and I felt it was really important especially since Lost was on the air that we sit down before we did any other work and figure out exactly what's going on and from and we plotted it out perfectly, or I don't know about perfectly, but we plotted it out pretty carefully and, and then decided what we would reveal down the line. And that was a very different process. And I'm glad we did it that way because there was so much, so much temptation to say, oh, let's just tell them all, everything now. And, uh, and we, we really held back on that. And I think that made, uh, you can see it on Netflix, uh, it's somewhere in the bottom of their um, their group somewhere, uh, but I think you can see that there's that that's what we did, and we, I think we did that fairly successfully. Well, I have one more for you guys, and then you folks can can ask. So I don't know if you can queue up or raise hands or whatever happens. But um, you've talked about building rules and having consistent rules. When is the time you can break those rules? Because every every rule is eventually made to be broken. When the characters tell you it's okay. Yeah. All right, do we have any questions? <laughs> do we have any questions out there? Yes. I'll take this one. Established the the origin story of, of slayers in general. Yeah. Like, was that in Joss's mind from the very beginning? Yeah. That actually is a question uh, beyond the edges of the stage. That's a Joss question. I'm actually not sure um, when he had that. Knowing Joss could easily have been from the very beginning. Um, he's the sort that would does plan stuff out uh, and 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 really think a lot about the underpinnings and the backstory and stuff. I wouldn't be surprised if that went pretty far back. But I, I don't have a specific for you. Other questions? Uh, right over there. Hi. Um, I'm sort of interested in the idea, you guys have all touched on it a bit about backstory and what you know and what you don't know. And I'm one of those people who saw Star Wars in the theater, and I didn't get the whole um, you know, Luke and Leia 
Yeah. Yeah. I really didn't feel that brotherly sisterly vibe. Yeah. <laughs> there's no way I kiss my brother like that. <laughs> um, so there's that, and then there's sort of like a baptizing thing that kind of happens, and um, regardless of whether or not it's been theatrical or in television, did any of you find in your shows that your field must have had you that you sort of had this idea and then maybe it didn't have to be explained on the air like through your story, but you're like, oh, I'm going to shift this and it changed your perspective in a way that changed the whole experience for you? Or totally, yeah. All sorts of stuff where you go back and you rewatch some footage and you say, okay, if we do this twist where that character's really that character's mother, are these scenes going to play as weird um, <laughs> that we already shot? And you really want that twist to work, and you convince yourself that no, that they sure they look that looks motherly. <laughs> yeah, sometimes it could work. Yeah. Oh yeah, and sometimes you find genius doing that. Yeah, I mean, I feel like that's very tempting idea because that has to do with what we were talking about was was letting the show itself speak to you and looking at what's happening. Not being like tunnel vision, like looking down, looking down, but looking at what's happening and letting that, letting from that arise realizations. I mean, I just think, like anything, you want to sort of kick the tires of everything and go, is that, I've never done that in my life. I have no idea where these expressions come from. <laughs> <laughs> but, um, but it's just like, you know, it's just like anything. I mean, it's a, it's a great, you want to be free. You know, you know it's interesting. We were, Jane mentioned this event. We went to this event of 101 best written TV shows or whatever it was at the WGA. It was on Sunday night. And um, I was sitting next to Vince Gilligan. Um, and uh, he said a really beautiful thing right away. I thought, he, I thought so. He said, just don't censor yourself. And it sounds so simple, but you know, for the writers in the audience, which maybe you all are, um, I think it's one of the hardest things because it has to do with that, that that, that worry that you're going to be treated like a fool or you're going to make a fool of yourself, that people are going to really, really reject you. Um, and what he was talking about, the you know, Breaking Bad idea, and he was saying, you know, you, you really want to be careful of saying to yourself, well, that will never work, or be that, being that voice. Um, I like to tr really try to not be that voice, you know, because there's a lot of those voices around anyway. Um, goodness knows you don't want to. Yeah, with megaphones, you don't want to internalize that voice and be ahead of them like well, they would never. They would never. That's not a good place for a creative person, you know. Right down here in front. question is about um, the changes in viewing processes, if that's changed, how you guys write. Yeah, absolutely. Certainly you feel much less required to recap things, uh, to hold the audience by the hand. The audience, the audience has a shared responsibility in the storytelling now, where they have the ability to go catch up and rewatch, and, and so I like to rely on them to do that, because I want everybody to feel like we're engaged in one big project together. Uh, Right there, the glasses, dark hair. Um, so I was reading an article or an interview where he had mentioned that Josh is very particular about how people read his lines, specifically as they are written. And um, vernacular and wording is very important. 
important kind of in mythology a lot of times about how people see things, especially like in Firefly and Buffy, and even really Battlestar means the horror movies. And I was just wondering how that played out maybe in other shows or how you feel that affects the world. You certainly want to make sure that your characters are all pronouncing the same names the same way, <laughs> which is a problem you run into. I think. Uh, <laughs> I'm sorry. I'm just thinking about Grimm. The, the, a full-time language expert, because we just made that crap up. It's just like. I'm just going to take a couple of German words and kind of cram them. The, the, the notion that that show plays in Germany horrifies me. <laughs> Although in Caprica, we, we used oh, yeah. ancient, uh, ancient Greek, Greek which uh, I, I actually got my old Greek professor to... Uh, Took three years of ancient Greek, and and but I have but I could never do it myself, so I made up a bunch of words and then had him go and do that, and then you guys used him throughout the thing. We actually did real Greek. Yeah, that was that was that worked really well on um, ancient Greek. But you also have a thing where these are American actors speaking, so we had a thing on Firefly where they would listen to the Chinese pronunciation when they had to speak Chinese, and for the first couple takes, it would sound really good, but you never print the first couple takes, the, take, the best takes, the last take, and by that point, the Chinese had gotten a bit approximate. <laughs> so you just have to hope that, like, well, it makes sense that phonologically, the Chinese language would have evolved and changed over the years. <laughs> We have time for two two more. There in the back, uh, glasses, dark hair. How about this side yeah. here? We'll, we'll, we'll get you. Uh, it seems like some more mythological shows seem to have a bit more of an added fandom. And I wonder what kind of role that plays in the creation for you guys. Um, especially now that internet, is, you're so, you've got an immediate response from your audience. Um, and people that know the show sometimes may be better than the cast, the crew. What that plays for you guys. In the creation of shows, I mean, like when we go and pitch a show, like do we think about? No, no, no. In uh, response to a current show, um, maybe in the writing room or when you're talking about the full-fledged idea of where the show's headed. Well, I mean, uh, currently with Falling Skies, the um, I, I, I think there's two parts to that question, so I'm going to try and answer one of them, which is that I, I, I'm fascinated and I pay attention to the fan feedback about the mythology of the show. I, I, I don't often let it influence me because I think they're looking at stuff that I've already presented to them whereas I'm at least far way ahead. I'm sure everybody else feels that way. But in terms of developing the mythology for Falling Skies, I mean, we, we, had a, we have a science advisor. Uh, he came in and built an entire 3D model of the universe and and this is stuff that hasn't even come out in the show yet, but we know what's happened. And from that point of view, uh, I hope we're ahead of the fans on what we're trying to present to them. I, I don't know if that's always the case, but certainly on a show like Falling Skies or BSG or, or any of those, you better know what's, what's what. Yeah, we had, we had a challenge on Caprica of how to get uh, a star cluster to have 12 planets around in it, and we, we enlisted our science advisor to came up with a way to do it so we could have 12 planets all easily travelable, one from each other, all working in the same star cluster. 
but it didn't mean that I wasn't spending a lot of time on Twitter dealing with people going like, this is bullshit. Uh, yes, there. The, we'll take one more after this. I don't care. say that that I don't I'm not influenced by that stuff at all it's characters are characters and and I think that I think overall I, I see that that is the perception and I know that I certainly got have gotten the note from network executives saying could you please make your characters more likable and 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 uh and I said, I, I said, I think there are people out there that like our character. Maybe, maybe not as many as you would like, but uh, you know. Uh, but I think that certainly the networks are influ are being influenced by the freedom that writers have in the cable world and uh, in the non-commercial world to be able to open up. Um, the possibility of flawed characters like Cinderella being pregnant, played by the amazing Jesse Schramm, uh, who's also on Falling Skies, this Sunday at 9 o'clock. <laughs> um, but, but I digress. Um, I think that, I think that the, the overall thing is, is people come and watch television, no matter what network, no matter what channel it's on, for the characters. I believe that in my heart and soul that you can have fancy uh, gags and concepts and stuff like that, but ultimately, week to week, all of us as television viewers, and I count myself as an avid one, come to that little box, now much bigger than it was when I was a kid, to watch people interact with each other and to, to get into their lives and, and fall in love with them. And I think that that no matter how many changes there are technologically and, and in the way in which we present our stuff, ultimately, television is an e intimate medium that allows us to be inside a character's life. And I think that's, that's what makes it so magical for me. Uh, playing off what you said, Jane, honestly, I think if you wanted to make the White Rabbit a drug kingpin, uh, ABC would be cool with that. Yeah. Well, there's actually, there's actually a thing. Like, I, um, the online show Husbands that I make with Brad Bell, like, we could do, we could make that really, really sexy and raunchy and explicit because, you know, it's YouTube and, you know, we could, or we could put it anywhere, we could do whatever we want. Um, but we made us explicit, like a really conscious choice right from the beginning. We're not going to show this couple doing anything that you wouldn't see a same-sex couple doing on network TV. Like, 
right state down the line ABC TV um, because we were trying to make a point that this uh, that, that we are not doing anything more extreme than anything you you've seen before. Yeah, yeah, we are mainstream. Um, yeah. One more question from the audience. <laughs> Whoever Winnie just pointed to, please. <laughs> Well, I'm a Joseph Campbell acolyte, so uh, because I do believe that the hero is at the center of, of all stories and that the journey is, is the story. But you know, when it actually comes down to it, that's there in the back of my mind, and I'm glad I I'm glad I learned it and I and I live it. But when I'm writing, <laughs> you know, I'm I'm on a I'm on a structural thing. If I have if I believe that there's any father of episodic television around, it's Charles Dickens myself, because he had to write episodically also. And and what I've always what I learned from him is you take a character, you put them through a lot of crazy ass stuff, and at the end, rede usually redeem him and bring him out. And most people are interested in that story, so that's my thing. I met a writer once who said he thinks the worst thing that ever happened to television writing was Joseph Campbell. <laughs> he was like, we're all thinking about this hero's journey now instead of just telling stories. I was like, oh. Yeah. It's the same thing. I still believe it's, 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 I, look it. I think it's like you have to learn how to drive before you can become a race car driver. So, I mean, I think that... Joseph Campbell, there's a lot of building blocks and stuff that I got it, and then I forget it, and then it yeah, just no, make a show. Yeah, it's not the only one. I mean, it's yeah, not no. the only one. No, no. Not but, yeah, but Sid Field is definitely uh, a terrible, terrible guy. <laughs> <laughs> For anything. Well, that is a human being. Please don't use that name in my <laughs> presence. for writing. <laughs> but but I, I do think Joseph Campbell is, there are, there are very valid points, and I do think that is how some of the best structures work. I don't think we have to be necessarily conscious of it. I think I agree. Like, no, I, I think it gets really confusing. It's not, it's not the kind of thing you can use forward. You have to do it retrospectively. Or you have to check in. If you're in the middle of your script and it's just not working, but you're really you're very close to the details and the world and the characters, and you don't understand why is this thing dead, then you might go back and look and go, oh, because... I think perhaps I've missed an essential step here. But to look at any kind of a, you know, here is the, the nine parts of a hero's journey, and then write going, okay, so next I've got to go here. Okay, so it'll be that. I yeah, I don't think you go, you, you tell your story, and then later you look back and go, oh, yeah, well, there it is. I think it's more fun to do it that way. You can look at television commercials and go, oh, my God, it's that, it's that same freaking journey. <laughs> The DNA is in that stuff, and whether we like it or not, we respond to it. So, and writers who, you know, because it is difficult and the blank page is scary, you do want something you feel like you can go back to, like some sort of an answer key, and go, well, at least I can sort of keep this in my peripheral vision. So you're talking about like when the husband in the commercial is skeptical about the new lasagna mix? Yeah, and that's all you're doing. That's a journey into darkness. <laughs> He's like, he's like, he's about to reject the call, but then the wife is like, try it, honey, and he's like, oh, I've got a mentor. And he goes, right, right, no, no, no. No, 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 she's the wizard. Don't you understand? 
Well, thank you so much to all our panelists. Thank you for coming. Now leaving Nerdist.com. 